You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 317. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! How are you guys? Not huh? bad yourselves? Yeah, I'm fine. Good, Very good. good. Busy for once. Working. Mm-hmm. I'm not used well. to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it must be difficult. I mean, when uh, we were right at the beginning of the pandemic and I got to stay at home instead of being on the go all the time, I felt so good about it. I mean, in the last, <laughs> last get few used to months, that. Yeah. it was so good. But then I started my tutorials and that meant the end of that era. So since then, I've been working my ass off and now tourism has restarted. So that means that I am traveling to Dubai tomorrow as of the day of this recording. So I'll be spending eight days there. Just in case everyone's interested, I'll be available well. And not having too much time on my hands, but more than happy to meet fellow skeptics if there are any in Dubai. Uh Mm. You're not guiding any people to Kiev at the moment, are you? Not at the moment. No, no, no. Okay, because I have uh, have three customers for you. Okay. So we have the Czech Prime Minister, Pietro Fiala, and the Slovenian Prime Minister, Janis Jansa, and I'm... So I'm I'm sure that I'm butchering all these names. So people, you know what to do if I pronounce it incorrectly, which I am, I'm sure. <laughs> Send us your recorded files on how these names should be pronounced, really. And there's actually four guys. I said three guys, but there's two guys from Poland, from my favorite, not so favorite, piss party. So the <laughs> Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and Jaroslaw Kaczynski, we know him. He is now the deputy prime minister and they're all going to kiev at the moment that's why i thought they may need a guide Anders. yeah what they they would have needed is not a guide and is not me but it's a fellow prime minister who happens to be staying home i mean you're talking about orban orban yeah. yeah 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 of course one of the reasons why that might be is because we had a, a massive celebration of the 1848 revolution it's happening today, what you're talking about. Yeah. But he didn't give that as a um, reason why he's not going. His communications chief of staff or someone only released a statement saying that, yeah, he knows about the meeting, but he's not going. Okay. That was all the comment from Viktor Orban, which is quite an outrage, I think. Yeah. But uh, regardless, it's quite brave to go to Kiev at this point, especially if you're a high-ranking uh, politician yeah that's right i i agree and especially that there are (laughs) you have no idea what you can bring upon yourself with that i don't know if you've heard guys but we had a drone what coming from somewhere in ukraine it flew through the airspace of romania hungary and croatia and it crashed in croatia very close to zagreb so (laughs) that means that the fucking thing flew for about 40 to 50 minutes before it hit the ground and it didn't show up on any radar. And it's such an old technology. It was a 2141. It's like a military reconnaissance equipment. And it can fly at about 700 kilometers per hour. It spent about 40 minutes, a bit less than 40 minutes in Hungarian airspace. No one picked it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> but this is not an armed thing. It's just to scout. It's or... not, but still. Yeah. And this came only a couple of days after Orban said that the Hungarian military is ready for whatever is coming and we don't need NATO and we can basically take care of ourselves. Yeah, this is how well we can take care of ourselves. Exactly how. <laughs> what, 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 was it a Russian or an, a Ukrainian drone? Do you know? Well, it was a Russian-made thing. Ah. So it was a former Soviet thing, but it was probably from, from Ukraine. Mm. Most likely not intended to fly this in this direction. <laughs> Oops. According to experts, it must have malfunctioned. But uh, still... The, mm. the fact that it wasn't picked up and that nothing was done about it, that's a little bit concerning, to me at least. Yeah. 
agree. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and it's pretty big. It's like a five-ton flying object. It's oh. big. It's massive. But it probably flies pretty low off the ground. It's not like it's going to space or anything. Well, it reached about fifteen or 1,300 meters of altitude. Yeah, but that's pretty so... low. Well, it's pretty low, but that's about radar altitude. So yeah, it's, it should be. It's, it, it doesn't mean that it's, it, it flies under the radar. No. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's now, if you go to Wikipedia and uh, look for Tupolev 2-141, you will already find the incident <laughs> on the usage section of the Wikipedia article. So pretty good. Don't have anything to do with it. Wasn't me. But <laughs> still, it's interesting. <laughs> But good you mentioned space, because uh, now there are issues out there. <laughs> because there is um scheduled flight, I mean, descent from the ISS back to Earth on the 30th of March on a Soyuz capsule hmm. with three people, two of them obviously Russian, but the third being an American astronaut who happens to be the one holding the record for staying the longest out in an outer space continuously. So there have been a couple of reportings of uh, the head of the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin, saying that they will leave Mark van der Heij behind instead of taking him down <laughs> to Kazakhstan. But it turns out that it was fake news. So ah, the yeah, Ars Technica reported that it wasn't true. It was just a joke. However, there have been a couple of comments made regarding the maintenance of the ISS as well, which is currently being, as you know, Pontus. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Igor who did uh, the adjustment of the yeah 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 of the orbit? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Right. So he's coming down too, and uh, they won't be able so, to steer it a- anymore. Yeah, so it's currently being done with a progress capsule and its nozzles. The small adjustments of the orbit of the ISS are being done with that. Obviously, the comments have been made that uh, when that is taken down, then the ISS is just free to float there. And after a while, it's going to slow down because of drag. And then it will burn up in the atmosphere and parts of it will fall onto the ground of possibly Europe or America. Instead of Russia, which is the largest country on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know, but there are certainly moments of tension, but not only up in outer space, but also in the whole of scientific exploration. Because now, for example, the UK is cutting the sources and basically terminating already existing collaborations with uh, with Russian institutions. So some um, UK institutions, UK universities, and research institutes are now cutting their ties to any Russian organizations, which is a big blow to international science and science collaboration. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that is yet another thing that suffers because of fucking Putin's fucking war. Yeah, so we should not be doing that. But up, uh, unfortunately, that's happening. So I hope we will have some good news as well today, because... I'm not sure. Otherwise, it's going to be so depressing. (laughs) It looks gloomy here. I'm looking at the sheet here. It doesn't look good. But I've got something. I will talk about something that will at least show us a way out of it. Not not out of the situation, but out of thinking about the situation like that. All right. Looking forward to that. Okay. (laughs) You're going to be our morale officer for today. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Okay. Do not fear. We're here to provide our listeners with a proper show, and that has to start with something that's called Trish, or This Week in Skeptical History. So, if I may, I will use a bit of Hungarian history for this segment today. As I already mentioned, today the celebrations were held on the 15th of March, is what we're talking about, for the anniversary of the one-day peaceful revolution of Hungary back in 1848. That was like a really good bloodless thing that happened, but people tend to forget that, by the way. It was not necessarily the beginning of the War of Independence, which followed afterwards, but the War of Independence was only a result of 
Franz Joseph, the Austrian monarch, mm. the emperor of um, the Habsburg Empire, to revoke the so-called April Laws, which were the main achievement of the revolution that started on the 15th of March, 1848. So that's one of the reasons why I'm mentioning that, because it's one of the misconceptions about the revolution. Not a lot of people are aware that the revolution started out as a very peaceful movement. It was a political movement. Obviously, it was an, a great opportunity for young thinkers, young intellectuals, liberals, to have their voices heard, including one of our nation's greatest poets, Shandor Petrofi. And my other misconception concerns him. It's well documented that he wrote a poem called The National Song, which is a, a very good poem, actually, about how we should stand up for ourselves and this is what we have to do. So The National Song actually, and it's, it's, it's probably the reasons why there is a confusion with regards to the, the revolution being peaceful, because it calls people in arms. So <laughs> that says that, okay, it's we've endured enough of this uh, tyranny and we have to cut our chains and set ourselves free and we have to grab our swords and fight for our freedom. But it was more like a figure of speech, right? It wasn't like an actual call for people to become violent. And it didn't become violent at the beginning. He himself performed his national song on several occasions during the day over many, many different venues. But one misconception that is held by almost everyone in this country is that during the day when there was a massive gathering in front of the Hungarian National Museum, which is a beautiful classical style building, the story goes that he stood in front of the building and performed his own poem in front of the massive gathering. Whereas we don't have any sources to support that notion. Mm. We have lots of sources providing evidence that he performed it several times during the day, but the largest occasion of the day, the largest gathering of the day, didn't mention it at all. And yet, even in history lessons, so even history teachers do teach occasionally oh. that story. So this is one iconic uh, happening that actually never happened. Yeah, it's probably never happened. And even though there is no evidence to support that notion, about 50 years later, I think in 1900, there was a club, the National Memorial Club, that put up a placard on the side of the building, mentioning that Petrofi performed his own national song in front of the building, even though there is absolutely no evidence for that. <laughs> <laughs> So, because he was a poet, obviously, he kept an extensive journal as well. And he loved to brag about every appearance of his and how big role he played in the events of the day, which were very important. And as a result of that, not very long after that, Ferdinand V, who is the king of Hungary and the emperor of the Habsburg Empire, he actually accepted the demands of the revolutionists. Basically, that is what we call the April Laws. But then he died, and in came Franz Joseph, very, very young, barely 18 years old. And uh, he revoked the laws without any legal competence. So that resulted in further movements, and the further movements could not be stopped any other way but uh, by the Austrian military marching in. And that resulted in the Hungarian War of Independence of 1849, uh, 1849. And the other reason why I wanted to mention this is because there are a lot of people in Hungary at the moment who are very enthusiastic about the commemoration of the revolution and the War of Independence as well. And they quote the national song. But when it comes to the fight of the Ukrainians for their own freedom, and against the tyranny and against the aggressor, they deny their very right to do that because they believe what the state media says, what is basically the same thing as Putin's state media does. Hmm. So yeah, it has a lot of skeptical aspects, even this very thing, which is held sacred by many Hungarians. 
All right, so um, let's move on <laughs> and see what's going on around the Vatican. Pontus, have you got something to poke the Pope for? Hmm, yeah, well, today this pokey popey <laughs> is called Frankie Almost Gets It Right. So Ooh. he's trying anyway, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> okay. Have you ever considered that there's a need for parental leave rules in the Vatican? Mm, not really. <laughs> well, no. for that you have to accept a child as your own, so... <laughs> <that's> <laughs> probably... Yeah, but, but for all really Frankie's sure. talk about producing more babies, he'd like that, right? You wouldn't think that yeah. the Vatican as such is a place where a lot of people get pregnant, but uh, they do. So there are actually over a hundred women employed by the Holy See, so they need rules for how to handle new parents. Or, as we are going to see, rather new mothers, because we know how backwards they are in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to add that like mm. dads can also take parental leave, and trans people, of course, also can take parental leave, but... Let's not be crazy well, exactly. here. It depends on the country. Exactly. It depends on the country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's exactly the point of this story, because there are rules for maternity leave. Six months for mothers employed by the Vatican... But now Frankie has uh, became a little bit more woke and he has <laughs> realized, or maybe somebody <laughs> tipped him off, that fathers also have a need and a, actually a human right, in my opinion, to spend some time with their kids. So in a very generous gesture towards all his staff, Frankie has now introduced paternity leave. As of 1st of March, it is possible to take paternity leave. And a father can now take up to a whooping three days of paid leave, provided that they do so within the first 30 days after the birth. So, yeah, well, welcome to the 1950s. <laughs> three days! That's extremely generous. I'm sure he has gotten a lot of uh, criticism for this, so we'll see if this will change, but that's really pathetic. Well, I have to say, like, I'm thinking about this stick figure that's jumping and saying, it's something! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so the other thing that Frankie did last week, which he actually deserves some credit for, if you can give him credit for the three days, is that he actually removed a Puerto Rican bishop from office. Although Frankie himself did not provide any official reason for it, it is um, said that it's due to a quote-unquote disobedience against the Pope. Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres has been talking out against COVID vaccinations. And we know that Frankie supports that. Frankie has actually told all the bishops not to talk against COVID vaccinations. And um, Daniel Fernandez Torres has also argued against a local law that would outlaw so-called conversion therapy to quote-unquote cure homosexuality. So there are good reasons for Frankie to get rid of Torres. However, it highlights one problematic thing. If you can get fired as a bishop for being anti-vax, and if Frankie actually has this in his power to, to do that, to get rid of unsuitable clergy, why does he almost never use this weapon, if we will, against bishops involved in child abuse scandals? In those cases, it's all about forgiveness and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, yeah... One thing, though, before we go, I thought we would uh, mention how Frankie has reacted to the Ukraine war. He has been criticized for not speaking up very clearly against it or saying much about it at all. But on Sunday, he called it a quote-unquote massacre and he condemned it. He talked about, quote, the barbarity of the murder of children, innocents and civilians, end quote. He called it an unacceptable armed aggression. End quote, that threatens to reduce cities to cemeteries. So that's uh, now he's talking out about it. I just want to point out that he has yet to expressly name Russia or Putin as being responsible for this. He's very, very careful not to criticize anybody. He's always want to keep all doors open. <laughs> that, that's not good. That's not good. Tell it like it is, Frankie. Yeah. So we should probably start poking Putin as well. Hmm. 
Yes. <laughs> Someone should. Someone, Someone should. should. Oh, just made me realize something now that we're mentioning Putin as well. That uh, I was talking about the revolution and the following war of independence. You know how the war of independence was finished? How it, how it ended? Mm, nope. nope. Well, the Russians came in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it was. Yeah. So it was the emperor who asked one of his cousins, Nicholas the First, I believe it was. Oh, Nico, you could probably help me out with the with the titles. So the Russians came to the rescue, and they basically ended the War of Independence of Hungary. Thanks. They're good at that. <laughs> it's a good role, isn't it? I mean, you play the role of being the big bear who stomps on you and uh, ends every little hope of independence for you. That should not be happening again. So this is why someone should poke and even stop Vladimir Putin. All right, uh, moving on to what's been happening across Europe. Yeah, this is the item I was talking about before. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, something I did at the beginning of COVID, and I also did it again on the 24th and 25th of February, I think you probably did it too, is what we call doom scrolling now. <laughs> Doom scroll. Oh, yeah. yeah. So for those who don't know what it is, it means obsessively spending time on news pages or profiles on social media and just try to find out new more information, more news, but like obsessively scrolling, scrolling and pretty much only focusing on the news. If a new pandemic comes around or if a war is declared, I think that's a very natural reaction to do that because mm -hmm. um, if a sudden thing happens, then what else is happening? Like what else can happen? But doom scrolling can actually become a very serious concern if you do it obsessively and if you can't or, or won't stop it. So I, for example, made a conscious choice now um, to restrict my social media use and to keep myself kind of like ignorant, except for this one slot of the day where I'm allowed to scroll. <laughs> I just noticed that me as a mom, like I couldn't focus on Luna anymore. And that's definitely not the way. Yeah, many people did doom scrolling or do doom scrolling too. And it can lead to chronic stress and can even change your brain. If you think about in the last few years, we had the news about COVID, we had the climate crisis and we still have it. Now we also have the global security threatened because of the Russian war. And exactly what you said before, it seems there are no good news anymore. Mm. The problem is, of course, there are. There, there are heaps of good news, but bad news usually sell a bit better. Algorithms come into play. And the problem is that our brain can lock into this situation and can really think that there is no hope. That's why it's called room scrolling. <laughs> it can promote feelings of anxiety and depression through mood induction and empathy. So mood induction is usually, for example, through like a sad melody or um, sad images. And empathy is what we all do, just like feeling badly for a person because they are in pain, for example. Interestingly, if you play sad music to healthy people, like people that are not depressed or anxious or anything, it even can reduce the serotonin level in them just by playing sad music. So oh. you can see that it is a str strong thing. And empathy is also a very good trait, but it can have a huge impact on you if you're focusing on tragic events all the time because you will feel bad all the time. Empathy is really good. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel that. But the problem is that with all of this news that we are bombarded with, with our social media, can actually lead to feeling of powerlessness and helplessness because you can't control the situation. Like, we all don't have a remote control for Putin, as nice as it would be. That's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it can actually lead to cognitive impairments like reduced attention, problems with memory, or reasoning, thinking less flexibly, and as I said, the whole powerlessness, helplessness feeling. So what we can do, <laughs> and now that that's like the solution, is we have to do what we can, basically. We have to avoid doom scrolling and gain mastery of the situation and control what we can control. 
There should be de-stress periods scheduled in your day, for example. Take a walk, exercise, uh, meet friends or family, learn a new instrument, learn a new language, and so on and so on. So something that just makes you happy and kicks up your serotonin levels a bit. Like the <laughs> ESP. You should listen to the you ESP and become ESP. happy because we never talk about any bad news on this program. Never. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so you no, should no. listen to the ESP while you take a walk, exercise with friends. <laughs> 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 yeah. What you also can do is help with a charity organization because that also activates the reward system in your brain. So that also mm-hmm. can make you happy and also feel makes you feel more in power in the situation. If all of these measures don't work, then it is a good idea to contact a clinical psychologist. Never take medical advice from this podcast, you know that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as I said, in all these kind of situations, like nobody should willingly stay in a depressed or anxious state because, hey, life is short. We all know that. And yeah, you should contact and get a psychologist, get professional help also to get more strategies to avoid doom scrolling we need all our brain power to tackle the problems we have and we can't control a lot of the things that are happening so we have to do what we can very good i've got another idea as to how you can uh, improve your mood Mm -hmm. listen to russian state media oh yeah happy sunshine because then it's first of all there is no war going on in ukraine It's Ah. just a special military operation. Everything is good. Everything looks okay. Putin is the greatest leader that has ever lived. And you you should be proud of yourself to be a Russian person. I think think it definitely has to activate your reward centers. Well, not if you want to buy something at the moment (laughs) in, (laughs) in Russia. But that's a different topic. Not monetary rewards, no. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, it's just the feeling of importance, and that has to be enough for a lot of people. But the problem with this is that it's getting stronger and stronger. I mean, the control over the state media, and for some reason, and this is what experts in the last few days have been discussed very extensively, in most of the countries, people don't even have the slightest idea of what it looks like to have total control over what people can consume as news and information. Okay, because in most of the countries, most of the Western countries at least, there is a plurality of news and journalism and different opinions and all that. We take it for granted and we don't even question that there is another way. And yes, we do talk about the fact that it's controlled by Putin and the whole system works like that. And now they are silencing every other opinion. But how deeply it goes into the levels of society is not completely understood. Well, as a Hungarian who lives in a country which follows basically the same example, I do think that I have a somewhat deeper understanding of what's going on. But uh, we still have other news outlets that we can turn to. But when it comes to Russia, those ones are dying out. Everything is being shut down. Companies trying to provide alternative, so-called alternative news, are being hunted. But there are local heroes who decide to throw everything away just for a moment of truthfulness. Have you heard about Marina Ovzenikova, who works at Channel One in Russia? And she basically ran onto the set with a transparent shouting that, that no war stop the war that you're being lied to and all that and it was written the writing was held up for a couple of moments before she was taken away and she released a previously recorded video as well explaining everything in a bit more detail that seems to be probably the only way now to overcome the kremlin propaganda and the kremlin control and it goes so deeply that there are reportings of people disagreeing with their family members who live in Russia under the control of state media and not believing their own family members when they tell them that there are cities being shelled and bombarded in Ukraine. So there is a reporting that a young girl was talking on a phone with her mother 
and her mother would not believe her. And she, she was calling from Ukraine, right? She was calling from Ukraine, yeah. And she was taking care of rescue dogs in a shelter, and she heard the explosions. She ran out to take care of the dogs, but then afterwards she was talking to her mother, and she wouldn't believe her. This must be like an everyday thing, and it's unbelievable how people can have so different views on things because they don't have access to the same sources and the same information. That makes it very much of a skeptical issue, I think, that we will have to talk a lot about in the coming month in all the skeptical circles. Because that is a great example of how misinformation and disinformation campaigns can actually kill. Yes. Definitely. This brings me to the interesting question of what do Russians really think of the war? And can we actually tell that? Putin claims that with his war, he's acting on behalf of Russian people. Mm-hmm. And after two weeks, it would be interesting to find out like how do Russians actually feel about that. Levada Center, or probably pronounced differently, <laughs> you know what to do, you know the drills, dear listener. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be still independent, and it says about 60% of Russians support the invasion, about a quarter oppose it. And now the question, of course, would be, can this be trusted? And the journalists sat down with Lev Dimitrievich Gutkov, director of the Levada Center, And they talked about this. He said that there is increased censorship in Russia right now and the Kremlin narrative is very tightly controlled. He said the public opinion is divided. He said they're less well-educated people or the older part of the population and people where the sources of information are very limited, for example, because they live out of bigger cities in poorer, smaller villages they usually repeat what the propaganda tells them. And that's about two-thirds of the population, sadly. Then about a quarter of the population is younger, from bigger cities. They have a different understanding and have a negative attitude to Putin and his war. But in the end, people are very afraid of the war and also about persecution. So he said there's an information vacuum, Facebook is turned off, the censorship is increased... And the internet might be even turned off soon, they fear. And no, there's the question, can the public opinion actually be be trusted? Can polls be trusted in authoritarian regimes? And (laughs) Gutkov says yes, because he said they are measuring not how people think, but how they behave in the public sphere. And that's pretty much what counts in that regard, in the political regard. And he said, what you can see here is a passive adaptation to a regime. Is that people are like, oh yeah, we're just repeating it safer. Then he also got asked what the Russians think, who's to blame for the war. And 60% of the Russians believe that the US is to blame for the war. 14% blame Ukraine and only 3% blame Russia. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) what the rest of the number is, (laughs) but uh, this is the numbers I've got. And... In regards to the economic crisis that will very soon be like even worse in Russia, the population has not really realized uh, all of the consequences and how sharp it will deteriorate now. About 60%, as we already know, are from villages or smaller towns and they don't know yet what, what happened. It didn't arrive yet, basically. And the next weeks and months will just show what, what will happen and also if opinions will change or not. But it makes you think, doesn't it, that whenever it goes even deeper and it becomes worse for them, all the state-controlled media has to do is convince them that it's not Putin's fault, but it's the West's fault. Yeah, exactly. So that would gain even more support for Putin to go on with the Mm. war. And that's all he needs. Nothing else. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't care about the people. No. He probably believes that he cares about the people, but but he obviously doesn't. A leader who cares about the people does what's best for the people, not things like yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but I have yeah. to say, like, like the TV presenter, this guy, for me, seems to be pretty tough and pretty brave. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 
kudos to to all Russians who are opposing an authoritarian regime because that takes a lot of guts. I don't know if I if I could do it to be honest. Well, you you would definitely do it privately. I would do it uh, privately, but because of my daughter, hard. I don't know yeah. if I would do it publicly to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. takes a lot of guts. <laughs> I know people from Russia who, who do that privately, yeah. but they keep their silence whenever there's a public appearance or anyone might be hearing it. And I believe that it's going to be even more yeah, so. Yeah, well, it will get worse. But let's focus on the good things. <laughs> yeah, let's How focus about on the good things. you, Pontus? Do you have good news? <laughs> no, I haven't. Yay. I haven't. And no, no good Cheerful news from episode. me either. Here you go. More about statistics, I would think. Not surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's bad news in a way. But no, it's not about Ukraine. That's good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but we have talked a number of times in the past about how hard it is to get a grip on the number of deaths from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So I told you it's a shameful subject. <laughs> but reporting is faulty and inconsistent. And how do you really classify something as a death from COVID? Or is it with COVID or after having COVID? If you compare countries with one another, it could be argued that it's more accurate to look at excess mortality instead. That is, how many people has died compared to what is normal for a certain period in time. And we have talked about this, but it's, of course, not just our idea. Many others have realized the same thing. And a new study published in The Lancet, and the study was partly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They looked at uh, this and they tried to estimate the number of COVID deaths through excess mortality instead of relying on official statistics. The official numbers, if you want to see those, they, you can see them on ourworldindata.org. And if you look there, you can see that it has just passed the 6 million mark. So 6 million people have died from COVID. But according to this estimate in The Lancet, around 18.2 million people have died because of the COVID pandemic. And I say because of the COVID pandemic, because they looked not only on, on people who died from the actual disease, but also if they died from other circumstances that was aggravated because of the pandemic. So it's not the same number, but it's three times as many as the normal number you hear, 6 million. It's actually 18 million. On average, they say that 120 people per 100,000 in the world, they died because of COVID during this two-year period from 1st of January 2020 to the end of December last year. In 21 countries, that number was actually over 300. So another way of expressing it is that 0.3% of the population died because of COVID. 0.3% sounds like a small number, but it is a big number when we talk about the total population in countries. So uh, as I said, not very good news, but interesting and it's another mm-hmm. way of looking at something that we hear about a lot. And it's it's even more important to think of the fact that how many people could have died have there not been any restrictions and prevention, preventative me- measures. Yeah, or vaccines, yeah. Or vaccines. So preventative measures are very important, even when it comes to things like um, nuclear radiation, right? So radioactivity is a big thing. It's a dangerous thing. And in the last two weeks, there have been a lot of talks about Chernobyl. And I'm, I'm going to try to pronounce this Zaporizhia, <laughs> where there is another very big power plant. The thing with these is that recently there have been uh, reports of power cuts to the nuclear power plants. Now, you might ask, what? What is it? a power plant is supposed to provide electric power? So why is it a big deal if there's there's power cuts? It's because it's a different system. It has to do with the cooling of, first of all, the used fuels that was removed from the the reactor core. Mm -hmm. And then it's basically cooled with water. But the coolant water has to be recooled all the time. There is a cooling system because the water itself, when it absorbs the heat, it starts evaporating. And when it evaporates, it stops becoming a coolant. Well, 
evaporation is a good cooling procedure, but when the water evaporates and disappears, then there's nothing left to do that. So you have to condense it as well and then restart the whole process. So this is why uh, we need cooling equipment. But that cooling equipment requires a lot of energy. Now, but the reason why I mentioned this is not this fact. It's because, obviously, people are afraid. What happens when, because of the fights or because of Putin's stupidity, one or two or even several of the nuclear reactors start leaking out radioactive material? So preventative measures might be in order, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how do you prepare for nuclear radiation like that? Fear not, because the homeopaths <laughs> do oh. have a solution for you. Fantastic. <laughs> and oh my I God. came across this on Edzadern's website, that it is a good catch. There is a Hafiz Ahmad Bhatti Homeopathic Department London, where they decided to follow the suggestions of Hazrat Khalitaful Mashi, who happens to be the leader of a Muslim community in Pakistan. I, I don't know how he's a great expert in homeopathy, but might as well be because homeopathy doesn't really require any expertise <laughs> whatsoever. So he suggested homeopathic medicines, so-called medicines, as a precaution against the harmful effects of atomic radiation. <laughs> and it's quite an extensive list. So there are things mentioned there by the name carcinosin. I assume that's some kind of a cancer extract diluted properly. <laughs> then radium brome, which suggests uh, radium and bromine. Yeah, there are several things that are suggested there. And there's even suggestion for adults, for f children between age of 10 and 15, between the age of 10, and pregnant and breastfeeding ladies as well. So, how, about, how about diabetics then? <laughs> uh, well, it, they're, they're, they're not specified here. They're not specified here. So it's, <laughs> you cannot eat these sugar pills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there must be a diabetic pill or diabetic homeopathic pill It's just somewhere. water then. That's they, interesting. They say they, they put it into water and then you just drink water. I, I, I have to look into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, after all, it's um, even though it's lactose that they use most of the time, lactose is disaccharid, which consists of glucose and galactose. So it becomes glucose and it's not good for diabetics. So, uh, yeah. Good question. Good question. <laughs> However, <laughs> there is even a suggestion for dosage. And uh, the note at the end says that repeat the course two months after the completion of the initial course. So every two months you, you start the seven-day course, then you're just going to be good. That is yet another piece of dangerous nonsense. Giving the false hope to people that they can survive nuclear radiation that's just ridiculous. That is something that should not be allowed. Yeah, apparently, and I started digging a couple of things, and it's not the first time that this has come up. When it comes to radiation therapy, for example, as we all know, homeopathy is uh, very often used as not necessarily a, like a complementary and alternative medicine. That means that, for example, when someone goes through radiation therapy, then uh, they are being offered an alternative on the side as well, hopefully just on the side and not instead of the, the radiation therapy. So there are homeopathic remedies offered for that as well. So it doesn't really make much of a difference, I believe. It will definitely not do anything if it's a homeopathic remedy, a homeopathic product. Yeah, let's not call them remedies at, at all. It's they products. Yeah. That's, that's what they are. You won't believe this. I googled it. And when I put in homeopathic diabetes, I got homeopathic diabetes treatments for dogs. And I got 5 million <laughs> hits. We should talk to Stephanie Handel oh again about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> guys, guys, do you don't you sometimes have the feeling that there is no point in doing this whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're doomed. I mean, I I don't want to be doom scrolling or doom catching or whatever, whatever it is called. Uh, <laughs> But I really sometimes have the feeling that humanity is beyond help. Yes. So uh, just as we need more bad news, I have Thanks. some for you. 
Oh. One thing that was helped a little bit by the pandemic was the levels of CO2 emissions. We all know mm-hmm. that we want to and need to fight climate change by drastically reducing release of CO2 into the atmosphere. And in 2020, partly because of the pandemic and I guess partly because of international efforts, the emissions declined by 5%. So that's good news. And it's very unusual uh, if you look uh, back on the on the statistics. However, that seems to just have been a temporary dip because 2021 came back with a vengeance. Last year saw the largest increase in CO2 emissions ever, a whooping 6% increase. That's 2 billion metric tons of increase. And that's the largest in history in absolute terms and um, pretty bad. It wasn't, however, uniformly distributed across the planet. To a large extent, we are talking about China. China is the only major country that had economic growth in both 2020 and 2021. And last year, they alone stood for 33% of the global emissions. That's one third of all the CO2 is now coming from China. And we're talking about almost 12 billion metric tons of CO2 only from China. So yeah, we're doomed. Yay! (laughs) Let's just be blissfully ignorant. (laughs) So yeah, but I strongly believe that one of the reasons why we are doomed is because there are lots of politicians who are in the business For the business. I mean, for the power, (laughs) for money, for whatever other reason they have, and not for the reason that we want them to be there. Like, to do something, to have a positive effect, positive outcome for society. And one of the, the ways that I believe this could change, if more people were aware of the rules of science and how objectivity can improve the decisions that politicians and decision makers make. Yeah, this is why I really love the idea of skeptics uh, across the globe trying to cooperate with politicians, set up rules, set up checks and balances for them, and act as possible consultants. So the more science we have in the decision-making process, the better. I'm just hinting at something that I am currently being responsible for with regards to the organization of the European Skeptics Congress, where we will have a panel discussion on the role of science in politics and coming up with policies. So I, I strongly believe that's very important. This is why I was very happy to come across the website of Office, Office being the French organization that is called French Association for Scientific Information. And what they did was, because now it's election season in France, on the 10th of April 2022, they will hold presidential elections. By the way, I'm just mentioning on the 3rd of April, we'll have our elections as well. But we haven't come up with something like Office did. They sent questions, a list of questions, from the sceptic and science-minded point of view to all the candidates. Well, they have a lot of candidates, 12 candidates overall in the presidential race at the moment. Well, not all of them are very likely to win, but uh, that's still interesting. So they send them all the questionnaire, and among the questions there were things like, what is the place of scientific expertise in the development of your program? I think it's quite a reasonable question. And when it comes to health and environmental risks, when it comes to GMOs, they do pose the question of GMOs and they go into a little bit of uh, the history of humanity and what the candidate believes what were the greatest scientific discoveries and technological innovations that formed the history and did a lot of good to humanity. So uh, things like that, including nuclear risks. So the, the last question is, do you trust the Nuclear Safety Authority for the assessment of nuclear risks? Ooh. That's a very good question, because that gives you an idea of how much the candidate trusts the experts and expertise. How much does expertise mean to them? So, 
How many answers do you think they got out of the 12 so far? <laughs> Three? Yeah. You're Two. too optimistic. <laughs> Two. 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 One of them <laughs> one of them was from the office of Emmanuel Macron. Okay. Which is That's quite good. nice. However, when you start reading the actual answer, <laughs> it doesn't say too much. And it doesn't answer the actual questions. It goes on and on and on about how much they support nuclear power and green energy and and all that, which is good, which is all good, but it, it, it wasn't the question, man. And it was obviously not a reply from the president himself, but his cabinet office. But Nathalie Artaud, I hope I pronounced the name Nathalie Artaud <laughs> properly, she is the candidate of the Communist Party. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she goes into quite a bit of detail and she properly answers every single question in the questionnaire. That is not something you would expect from a politician who's running for the office of president of France. I, I find it quite surprising. She doesn't go into too much detail either, but at least she tries to be very thorough in the answers. So I believe, so not necessarily the answers and the fact that there are only two answers so far out of 12, but the fact that Afis does that. Mm-hmm. Afis sends out a questionnaire to all the candidates and they publicize the replies as they come in. So I'm not saying this might have too much of an effect on the decision of the voters, but I think it's a good direction for a skeptical organization to go down. So well done. Yeah. Right. No, actually, I should say the the Swedish skeptics have done so in the past as well. And we're also coming up to an election this year. So we'll do it again. Okay. And how how do you do it? Uh, well, we don't have a presidential election, of course, so we sent it to the press offices of, of the parties. So it's it's for yeah the parties that will give not a president, but a prime minister, right? Well, you vote for people to the parliament and you vote okay. for parties, but you can vo- vote for individual persons. Then it's up to the parliament to elect the prime minister. So, so it's not necessarily the leader of the party. No, well, it usually is. Yeah. But you don't directly vote on who's going to be prime minister. Yeah, yeah. We don't do that either. But obviously, we expect that person to become the prime minister. So it's about people. So it's not about not necessarily about parties only. It's about people. So now we're voting against Orban and not against Fides. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, that has been all the news for this week. And that means that we are moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately, uh, apart from Putin, of course. (laughs) We talk a lot about the Pope in this podcast, or at least I do. But there are uh, other religious leaders out there that uh, maybe we should focus a little bit more on. Moron. Maybe they're all morons. (laughs) One such moron is the Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill. He is a leader of the Russian dominant religious group. He is deep into the pocket of Putin and uh, now even other Orthodox Christians are coming out against him because he has repeatedly expressed his support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I don't know about Russian... Orthodox Christians, but Orthodox Christians outside of Russia is coming out against him. And what does that mean uh, when you come out against him? Well, what they do is they now exclude him from their prayers. So that that, that makes me as an atheist a little bit uh, giggly and laughing (laughs) because that means that they, I, I mean, that it's fine that they come out against him, but I doubt he will have any real consequences just because they stop naming him in their magic chanting. But I'm, as I said, I'm just a stupid atheist, so what do I know? Anyway, (laughs) what has he done? (laughs) According to Orthodox Patriarch Kirill, the conflict is not a war. It is a, quote, struggle of metaphysical significance, end quote. And he continued to say, quote, We are talking about something different and much more important than politics. We are talking about human salvation, end quote. So what is he on about? Well, he claims that the invasion is about stemming the spread of, quote, gay parades, end quote, from the West. 
At the same time, he talks about how Russia is there to save Ukraine from the Nazis. So if you put those things together, what he is saying is that the non-existing Nazis in Ukraine needs to be defeated because they do not discriminate enough against the LGBT community. That's fine. (laughs) That's some real nice logic there. So for being a close ally to Putin and using his made-up religion to justify war against non-existing Nazis because they do not persecute minorities enough, Russia's orthodox patriarch Kirill gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. (laughs) Indeed. Mm. I mean, there was also this birthing home in Germany that didn't want to have vaccinated women... (laughs) to give birth in their place yes i gotta say like that would have been probably a close second but (laughs) this is definitely the the winner (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are many people who are wrong every week yes yes (laughs) okay thank you very much pontus and that brings us to the end of the show which means we need a quote to finish on Yeah, I'll hit you with a quote. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) And the quote is by, I'll try to pronounce that correct, Henri Bergson. Um, Bergson was a French philosopher and educator and lived from 1859 to 1941. And the quote is as goes, the eye sees only what the mind is prepared to comprehend. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Short right. And sweet. That's a, yeah, that's a, there's a lot of truth in that. We see what we believe rather than believe what we see. Yeah, there's so much bias yeah. in what, what, what our brain gives us. Mm-hmm. And it's very fitting to some of the topics that we've covered yes. today as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very right. depressing episode, Yay! I must say. <laughs> okay, so uh, before we bring the mood even further down, I think we should stop for now. <laughs> And come back next week to do some damage control. Yes. <laughs> we'll so pick you I'd up like next thank, week. <laughs> I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe This is episode 300 This is episode 300 (laughs) (laughs) You'll get it right Just go on I'll I'll get it right I'll get it right Can you hear the explosions in the background? Explosions well, it's probably fireworks. Now I can hear it. I really hope it's not gunfire that we're uh, hearing. Me, me too. Okay. Uh. <laughs> I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> Find out very soon who's been really l- wrong lately. Apart from Putin, of course. L- wrong? Is that how you want to say it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Okay, let me say it again. <laughs> we talk a lot about the Pope on this po- podcast. Popecast, in this podcast. <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Should I do it again? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs>
or if you want to pronounce him English, Henry Bergson. <laughs> That's um, more American, okay. <laughs> <laughs> was very American, I'm sorry. <laughs> What happened to your Australian accent? <laughs> Henry Bergson. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. No, I'm, I'm losing out. I think next week we should only talk about cats. <laughs>